Good morning. We're in our fourth week of looking at spiritual discernment. I've been looking this week at the foundation of discernment, these, these building blocks for spiritual discernment. Yesterday we were talking about the fourth uh, crucial building block, which is that love, not just affection or obligation, but love, is our ultimate calling, that love for God, love of self, love for others, love for the world. This is clear from Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you have not love, it profits you nothing. I mean, it's Paul in other places says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. That we are to know the love of God and to respond to the love of God with love for him. And then that love being so powerful and so real that it, it, it is expressed in love for others, even, Jesus says, even our enemies. This is clearly the will of God. And there's, there's some aspect in what we're going to look at today is that if I'm unwilling to do the things that are the clear will of God, I won't know the more mysterious or secret things of God. What we see quite often, even in the church, and as people get closer together in an organization, even a Christian organization, is that this simple truth that we are to love one another, even as Christ has loved us, is often lost. So what happens is people kind of reserve uh, in a sense, what love might be calling them to do in these big, major decisions, but they haven't, they haven't grown in that capacity to love because they haven't demonstrated that love in everyday life. The major decisions or the major moments of life are always, you know, preceded by, there's a leading up to those moments in which God is asking us to be faithful to faithful to love him, to love others. And when we haven't done that, and we come to these major decisions, it is very hard then to understand, to discern the will of God for major decisions. So, now the good news in all of this is not only does the Bible keep pointing us to the love of God and to the love of others, but the Holy Spirit has been provided for us, and he is the very love of God resident in the walls of your life. And so he's there nudging you, urging you, moving you, even uh, developing a curriculum around you to give you a greater and greater capacity for love. So when seeking to discern God's will, it helps to keep before us the question, Every day, every moment, what does love require of me? And then to create some space for the listening to what the Spirit says in response. Uh, possibly you're like me each day in my position as pastor. There are, there are situations, sometimes there are crises, sometimes, sometimes it's just um, somebody's having a personal difficulty. Um, I must be in tune in every situation in which my 
capacity of pastor is required to ask, what does love require of me in this circumstance, in dealing with people's behavior, in dealing with people's um, attitudes and actions? What does love require? Not, not how mad am I or how embarrassed am I or how inconvenienced am I, but what, what does love require of me in these situations? Now, this goes back to the building block of an absolute commitment and experience of that God's goodness is sufficient that I can trust him in the most difficult circumstances and with the most difficult people. Do I, I mean, these are questions that are worth asking. Do I believe in God's goodness enough to trust God with the things that are important to me? You see, when something's really important to me, am I going to still say, I trust you, I trust your goodness, your faithfulness, but in a sense, I'm also asking or asking you to ask this question with what you know means the most to me, with the things that matter. What does what does love require of me? And so it begins to kind of <laughs> make this a sharper focus of saying, Am I giving myself to God fully? And am I and am 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 I convinced? That whatever outcomes, whatever results that come, that he is working my good. In a way, this is what love really requires in relationship with God. To trust his goodness in such a way that I, 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 I yield, I surrender the outcomes, the results of people I care about, of, of circumstances that matter to me. And I trust his goodness. And then I, I, I will be developing a capacity for asking what does love require me in the major decisions because I've been, I've been yielding to his love in all the decisions of my life. Now the, the, the real question then is have I learned to listen to, the, to his spirit so that I know what is required of me? Now, I mean the fifth block is if I'm hearing from the Spirit, if I'm understanding the goodness and the love of God, then I I have to be committed to doing the will of God as it's revealed. See, the Spirit is not going to keep revealing to you if you keep saying no. You will only go as deep as your obedience. See, it does no good to discern the will of God if you're not committed to doing it. And in truth, this is really the hardest part. But, but this is sort of the, the stop sign of discernment. Is God could reveal everything that he wants for your life. He could reveal what love requires for any situation. But he knows, even before you make a decision, you know, whether you're going to be committed to doing his will or not. Um two writers uh, who wrote a book on discerning God's will said this, the question of willingness must be answered before the process of discernment begins. Are we willing to do God's will even before we know it? Or do we prefer to play games with God by saying, God, show me your will, and if I like it, I will do it. Well, I hope you've been 
discerning along the way that spiritual discernment is not a game. Playing games with God leads to nothing but frustration. Jesus is so clear on this. He says, whoever does my will and the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. As we are faithful to discern and then actually do the will of God, we become and we experience being the intimate family of Jesus. So therefore, discernment is a whole lot more than mere decision-making. It's, it's a habit. It's a way of seeing. We've been talking about this all along. A way of seeing, seeing what love requires. Trusting the goodness of God for your whole life. It has to permeate your whole life. It's not something you can jump in of, in and out of. As we observed in John 9, it's a movement from seeing things merely from a human perspective to seeing from a spiritual vantage point. Remember, one of the building blocks of spiritual discernment is the, the knowledge that you're seeking to discern originates in the Trinity. Its origin is spiritual. So we have to be able to, we have to be those who are not, you know, lacking in commitment that when he shows us something, we trust his goodness, we make space for what love requires, and we tune our will to his. Um, one of the ways to look at this, and this sometimes I would say this is one of the best of all things about discernment, but one of the hardest, is discernment is a quality of attentiveness. Not just to your heart or to your circumstances or to people around you, but attentiveness to God that over time develops into the ability to sense God's heart and his purpose in any given moment. Now, we've been looking at Micah 6. This is the very will of God for you, that if you are attentive to God, that God wants to reveal to you his will. Listen what Micah says in verse 8 again. He has told you, this is Micah prophesying on behalf of God. He says, O man, what is good? So what you're recognizing is that God loves to reveal what is good. And, and God alone can reveal what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? Okay, so again, we're talking about what does love require of me? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You see, when, when people get these verses wrong, which they often do, it's because they don't understand the, the importance of God's order. See, the, the first step is not to say, let me try to do my best. Because Micah has already answered that question that even if he were to give all the wealth of the world, even if he were able to, to give what was most precious to him, his own firstborn, it would not atone for sin. So he wouldn't then turn around and say, okay, just try your best to be just, avoid injustice. Try your best to be kind, show mercy. You know, do your best to walk humbly with your God. That, that's not the order. The order that Micah is putting forth when he says, shall I give my firstborn to you. The order is very clear 
that you can't call God, God, and you can't have a right standing with God, except that you receive the Father's offer of His Son. Our Heavenly Father, in order to have a relationship with you and with me, knew that we could not do anything that would be uh, justifying our acceptance and our standing with him. So he himself made the sacrifice and Jesus himself, the son of God, became the sacrifice. So that there's a double payment here in a sense for your atonement. And the one Jesus dies on the cross for your sins so that your sins are paid. But two, he lived a perfectly obedient life from, from beginning to end so that now his righteousness, which you see, he didn't need righteousness to his account. He's the son of God. He lived a life of righteousness so he could put it to your account. You see, unless we get this order right, then any attempts that we make to be just or any attempts that we make to, to love mercy or kindness, any attempts that we make to walk humbly with our God are all failures. But you see, once you get this order right, that God saves you by his grace, by his free and sheer grace, and then you begin to live out of this place of, I am who Jesus says I am. I am who the Father says I am. I am a child of the Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, adopted with all the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. And you live in that grace, then... Micah's words begin to say, here's how you live in grace. Do justice. So interesting. This idea of justice is not simply kind of a, a court or legal justice. This is the Hebrew word mishpat. And it refers to caring for the most vulnerable classes of our society. For those, in a way, who have no voice. For those who have no access, it, it included widow, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. The mark of God's grace, according to what is good and, and what does love require of you, is that God's grace in your life leads to a deep commitment to care for, to listen to, to lift up the most vulnerable in our community. And the word mishpat actually means that you do something about it, that you care in a practical way. Again, there's, a, there's always this dynamic in the Old Testament. And the, the dynamic is, is, is usually set against the time of the Israelites in Egypt when they were the vulnerable, when they were the widow, when they were the orphans, when they were the, the foreigners, the immigrants, and they were the poor, they were the slaves without rights. And so the, the idea of God is always, always this contrast of, do you not see where I've taken you from? Bankruptcy, poverty, slavery. And I've put you into the promised land and I've given you a land flowing with milk and honey and I've made you not slaves, but sons and daughters. See, in a way, unless there's been that transference, 
You know, our contrast is not Egypt, but slavery to sin. Movement from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And, and in a way, he's saying, never forget that in this world, your status was as the most vulnerable, as those who were in bondage to sin and death. And I've translated you out of those. I've transferred you out of that into the kingdom of my wonderful son. And so he says, because of my grace, now you respond to those who are vulnerable, to those who are immigrants, those who are orphans, those who are widows and and the poor and care for them. This, This same contrast of what you were before to what you are now flows out of this idea of loving mercy or loving kindness. This is, this is God's word when he talks about, you know, to love mercy, to love kindness. He's talking about his own steadfast love. This is, this is such a beautiful Old Testament picture of agape in the New Testament, but it's the idea of a counter-conditional love. It's a love that is given so freely and so abundantly to someone who does not deserve it, to someone who has no possibility of earning it whatsoever. Again, what's he saying? You never deserved my love, but I have given it to you. A counter-conditional love. I've asked no condition of you. I've taken care of all the conditions so that I can love you. All I've ever asked of you is to receive that love, to believe in that love, and to live in that love. And now he's saying, this is what is good, is that if you grasp how you have been covenantally encircled with my steadfast love, my counter-conditional love, then the evidence of that will be the way you love, the way you're kind, the way you show mercy. In a way, he's saying, if if all you ever do is give love to people you think deserve love, then you have not understood God's love. If all you've ever ever done is, is rail against people that you think are less than you, then you've never understood God's mercy. You and I did not come into the covenantal love, the the bonds of God's steadfast love because we deserved it. We, We received it because he gifted it to us. God loves us because he loves us. You know, this one's a tough one in a way because it means love no matter what. Wow. The covenantal love of God. He loves no matter what. We learn to live like, like our God by loving like our God. And this is such a powerful thing. It's, it's not about what I receive from people that triggers this kind of action in my heart. It's what I have to give. Do you understand why, again, I go back and I say, this is absolutely necessary to be attentive to God. Because you can't produce this kind of love. You have to be receiving and understanding what you're receiving in the steadfast love of God, in the counter-conditional love of God, for you to be able to have anything like this to give to anyone else. It took me a long time. (laughs) It took me a long time to start to open myself up and surrender to this kind of love. 
even even after seminary, even after pastoring for a while, I look back and I, it was not until my early 30s that it started to really get clear to me. I only love people who I thought were worthy of my love or I only love people who made me feel certain ways or who, you know, who I felt safe with. And, and, and it closed me off to the love the Father has for me. It closed me off to this idea of counter-conditional love because, see, I was giving conditional love, so I expected that God himself was giving conditional love. So when I was living what I thought was a holy life, I was like, yeah, I deserve your love. When I was, when I was in the darkness of my soul or when I was seeing these dark sides of my soul, and I was like, oh, there's no way he could love somebody like me. That's why the order is so important. It has to be established in your heart that you are engulfed in, you are encompassed in a counter-conditional love of God. You don't deserve it, you don't earn it. That it starts with receiving his love as being fully accepted, fully acceptable to the Father, that he loves no matter what, so that then you can begin to receive from the Father so that you're not looking to everybody else to give what only the Father can give. Well, the third uh, description of what is good and of living attentively to God is called, Micah says, walk humbly with your God. Well, to walk, walk is to have a relationship with someone. It's an intimacy. It's this, in a way, taking them by the hand and going someplace. You know, taking a, a walk together, a direction together and going someplace. Um, I heard these three things and I realized this is what this means. Would you try to make note of these with me? To have... This kind of relationship, to walk humbly with your God, means three things. That you're, you're exposed and you're totally accountable to Him. That you will not walk, to walk humbly, is you will not hide anything from Him. And you live totally accountable to Him. That you recognize, secondly, that to walk humbly with God means that you are befriended by Him and you are totally loved. And that every day that you walk with him, you are increasing your capacity for intimacy so that every day you can enjoy and encounter greater intimacy with God, befriended and totally loved. And the third thing is this. This is, this is what God wants from you. This is what it means to be attentive to God, is that when you walk humbly with your God, you are progressing and you are changing. See, What's happening is instead of trying to modify your behavior, modify your attitudes, you are drawing in closer, more attentively to God so that he can progress you and he can change you. What this really means is what Paul talks about, that you're growing in capacity for the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is developed. You can't manufacture the fruit. It has to be developed in you. Listen, listen to what Tim Keller says about this. I think it's helpful. The spirit-fueled development of Christ-like character is liberating because it brings us closer to being the people we were designed to be. 
the people our spirit renewed hearts wants us to be or want us to be. We are saved by faith, not by growing fruit. But we are not saved by a fruitless faith. A person saved by faith will be a person in whom the fruit of the Spirit grows. The fruit of the Spirit has internal roots. It is not about traits or characteristics. It's about a change much deeper than that. Think about an apple tree. Do the apples on the tree make it alive? No. If you tied apples onto a dead tree's branches, that wouldn't make it alive. The apples don't give life. They are a sign that the tree is alive. This is God calling us not to niceness, but to newness. As we think on these, as we think on these things together, where is God getting your attention? He's, his desire for you is to be attentive to him. The result of attentiveness to to God is that you will discern the will of God, you will do the will of God, and you will know what is good. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. Justice is not sin this mishpat, it's not simply your your you know your need for fairness or your need for your rights to be you know, to be uh, demanded, but rather it's because you once were so vulnerable and you once were so lost, orphaned in spirit, dead in your sins and your trespasses, spiritually impoverished, but now he has transferred you to status of an adopted daughter and son. And now he says, if you get the order and you're attentive to me, then you will see those who are vulnerable like you were. You will see those and you will act in ways that will change their lives like God has changed your life. And this idea of covenant love, this idea of steadfast love, mercy, kindness, oh, recognizing that you didn't deserve this love, this righteousness. You didn't earn it. It's not your record. It's Jesus's record. And you begin to realize that you have been loved with a counter-conditional love. Now he's asking you, since you have received such counter-conditional love, will you, will you give that love? And will you walk in this way that's humble with your God, exposed, totally accountable, befriended, totally loved, progressing and changing because you're committing your heart, your life, your ways to the Lord. And the fruit of the Spirit is being developed by your yieldedness and surrender to the Spirit. Let me, let me close with just one illustration from my own life. It's one I've, I've spoken many times about. I always have loved to teach the Bible. I've loved to preach. I started teaching and preaching when I was 18 for the first time. And I just felt like I was breathing. It was so important to me. It was so meaningful to me. But it was also soul-crushing to me in this sense that I lived or died on the opinions or approval of others. And sometime in that early 
years of my 30s, the Lord really revealed to me that I was using this way of serving the body of Christ. I was using this way of using a gift or a talent or or a part of my personality. I was using it to get my own needs met. Affirmation, attention, approval, acceptance. And what he showed me so clearly is that my goal was to have people love me or delight in me. And the reason I was so frustrated is because it was a goal over which I had very little control. One person could block my goal. And he began to show me that what, what was happening, even though he was faithful in preaching and teaching that I was doing, what was happening is that I, that, that I had it backwards. I had the order backwards. I was trying to get from people what I first had to get from God. So in a way, I was pastoring and leading and preaching so that people would like me. And when you do that, you put yourself in a position of real pain, disappointment, even betrayal. And the Lord began to reveal to me that if I really wanted to be a pastor, I really wanted to be a servant of Christ in his church, it had to start with what we're talking about, of what does love require? And I began to realize is, is that he was giving me love for every person I ever speak to, love for every person I ever teach or preach or lead, but particularly he was giving me love for the, for the church that I was pastoring. And everything changed from that moment. I changed, the preaching changed, the people changed in a way because I was no longer trying to get the love from them, which is conditional love. But now I was receiving counter-conditional love from the Father for the people. I was delivering that counter-conditional love and I was experiencing the love of the Father for his people, and nobody could block that. Sure, some people responded poorly, some responded well, it, but their response was still up to the goodness of God, which I trusted in and which has always proven to be faithful. You have to look in your life at the places where you have not asked that question. What does love require? What does the Lord require of me? Because that's the, only, that's the only way that you will really know that you've done what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. What does love require of me? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God bless you.